I'm Jacqueline. And I'm Courtney. And this is Caffeinated Crimes. Welcome to our evening recording edition after a very long weekend. And I just started my second glass of champagne and Courtney goes first. So by the time I get to my portion of the story, I don't know It might know be an espresso. <laughs> it might be an espresso. She might go, Courtney, just keep going. Keep yeah, going. I, might, I might get Barrel two through. sentences in and then Courtney was like, bitch, now nah, you're done. I'm going to take over <laughs> here. <laughs> So we'll we'll see what happens, but you know the the Bengals won today. So we are, as always, drinking our celebratory champagne that was DoorDash to us from Seven Eleven in the middle of the game because Andrew and I always have champagne. It's a it's a tradition, guys. You got to have the champagne before the game. You got to drink it if they win. If they don't win, you can't drink the champagne until the next win, right? You know that's just the way it goes. Mm-hmm. That's the way we've done it for like I don't know seven years now. Um, so like halfway through the game, I was like, oh shit, we forgot to get champagne this week. So Andrew had to uh, get on DoorDash and have this guy deliver us some champagne from 7-Eleven. But you know, so we won because we got the champagne. So now we got to drink it. And that's my great know. story for you guys this Sunday evening. I know. <laughs> I cannot welcome. wait to have a very strong drink after this. I have, I'm very sober at the moment. I'm, I'm sorry. All day. Um, I know it sucks. Uh, and <laughs> also I still have to meal prep after this. And oh. while I was out today, I asked Kevin, like, can you please lay out some chicken? And mm. I get home and he laid out one chicken breast and one turkey instead of two chicken breasts. So I was like, well, thank you, but not exactly. And like, and I he was like, I was so effort. distracted. Was like, <laughs> he was so watching they, football and you made him walk to the freezer and lay well, out meat, Courtney. I you just asked too much him, of him. <laughs> I told him, I was like, just do it when you have a moment. I know that you're frustrated. Like, just wait when you get a moment. And he's like, I just wanted to get it done. And I was like, okay, but... And he's also chopping up a bunch of vegetables right now for the meal prep. And Mm -hmm. I was like, it was probably a little mean, but I was like, are you going to remember this? Are you going to (laughs) remember what I tell you needs to go where in this moment? (laughs) And he was like, Titans aren't playing. I'll be okay. okay." He's like, I'm paying attention now. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm past the point where I like, I'm just like, are you listening to me? Are you, are you sure? Repeat it back to me. (laughs) (laughs) Because, you know, (laughs) just. I've even done it suddenly in the freezer where the frozen turkey is on one shelf and the frozen chicken is on the other. Like it should have been simple, but you know, sometimes, and I literally write on the back, I'll write like turkey, one pound, this many calories, (laughs) chicken, this many ounces, this many calories. Like it is all laid out. (laughs) He just did not, you You know, know, he was, he's too busy. Yeah, he's he's still chopping up my vegetables for me, so I can't complain too much. Yeah, I'll give him that. I do want to say it's impressive that he's able to chop vegetables while you're recording and we don't hear all the background noise because when my husband chops vegetables, as you know, Courtney, it sounds like he is <laughs> taking out loud. the counter with him. <laughs> like, yeah. what are you doing? <laughs> Kevin has those delicate hands. You know that he, he's an Xbox <laughs> Xbox player with those that controller. That he knows how to be it. real gentle. Oh, does instead he? Of, uh, <laughs> instead of the computer where Andrew just smashed. Yeah, I feel like that's a good analogy between the two. Like that's really that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, when uh Andrew was preparing for Thanksgiving the day before Thanksgiving, and I was on a work call while he was like demolishing the turkey. I don't know the correct word for that, but you know, he was like mm-hmm. taking apart the whole turkey and like using his meat cleaver, you know, the one I'm talking about. And yeah. so my my I was having a call with my boss and she's like, is everything okay over there? Because you just like Boom, boom. Oh my background. She's like, what is happening? I'm like, yeah, my husband's just decapitating a turkey. I don't, I don't know. It's, don't worry about it. It's all good. It's all good. Yeah. 
Wow. Okay. This just went in so many directions like, so it, many directions. like it does. Um, we do have one update this week, a pretty big one. Um, so you guys may be familiar with the case of the boy in the box. So in February of 1957, a young boy's body was found inside a box in Philadelphia. Um, so they did end up finding that the box was for like a bassinet, like they were able to track it to the store, but then really couldn't get any more information about who this boy was, like where this box came, like who bought this box, you know. Um, the autopsy did reveal he had been beaten to death, but again, no more information about his identity, and he has been known as the boy in the box since then. So uh, this week, as of this recording, December 2022, after 65 years, DNA has finally revealed that this boy was four-year-old Joseph Augustus Zarelli. Um, and investigators do say they have some suspicions about who was responsible for Joseph's death, um, but this information hasn't been shared yet. Obviously, it's like very early, you know, mm -hmm. in their and and this part of their investigation with having that information. So hopefully, you know, his family will be able to get some justice after all these years. Yeah, because I think the article, uh, one of the articles I was reading, said he still has like living siblings. Mm -hmm. It's just like, what happened to this boy? Like, what happened? Yeah, and they said that like his hair had recently been shaved, but like not in like a professional looking way like it didn't look like oh he just got like a buzz cut like it was very mm -hmm. like haphazardly done like his fingernails had been trimmed very short like a lot of odd things like one of the investigators said that it like looked like a doll and then they realized like oh this isn't a doll like this was a child just kind of some odd characteristics to this case so hopefully we will have more information about that in the coming weeks or months yeah well, let's go ahead and get started on this. Another just devastatingly mm. sad case. Um, yeah, this one's rough. Yeah, it's really rough. I keep, I mean, they're all very rough, but I've picked picked a rough few lately. So I'm going to have to reevaluate yeah. my uh, choosing and, and next week's is also really rough, guys. I'm very sorry. We, maybe the one after our that. Our seasonal we'll need to... depression is coming out <laughs> in our research. Very, very <laughs> evident here, guys. It gets dark at like four o'clock. Okay, it's it's a struggle. And I did have this research alone four hours away from home in a hotel. So that was fun. Um, <laughs> yeah, that sounds like a great time, Courtney. <laughs> great time. Um, so our sources for this week was a deadline crime with Tamron Hall, see something, say something. And that was season two, episode four, um, a law Justia article and the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. So when Beverly Jackson was found murdered in her car in a canal in Miami, law enforcement couldn't understand who'd want to kill the pediatric nurse who was also a mother of four. And it would actually take eight years and a secret informant to find out what happened to her. So on January 16th, 1995, in Miami, Florida, at 11 a.m., the Miami-Dade dive team were on their way to a canal on the intersection of Northwest 173rd Street and 52nd Place. So they responded to this location that had a submerged vehicle with the roof of the car sticking up out of the water. So Marco Pascal is a part of the Miami-Dade dive team, and his job is to, like, fish out the car and in 1995 he said they pulled about 800 cars a year from the miami-dade waterways that is wild i would I, never would never guess that number like there's only 365 days in the year that's almost <laughs> three cars a day that is insane wow yeah so it was just like 
here's another day, here's another car. Um, and most were usually a type of like insurance fraud. So they were just kind of like, you know, here's another one where someone's trying to say, oh, my car got sunk, like, Mm -hmm. give me money, whatever. Like, oh, I'm struggling to, you know, pay my, I want to say card note, but that's like British, I think. Um, You know, the payment. Yeah, that your car payment. (laughs) Okay. You know me, guys, glass and half of champagne and just go British. I don't know what to tell you. Um, (laughs) Yeah, like you're just like, oh, like I'm struggling to pay my car payment. Like I can't make this payment. Let me just go run it off into this waterway and get insurance to pay for it. Insurance is like, what are y'all doing? We see this (laughs) three times a day. (laughs) Right. Like I don't think so. Um, So... Marco attached a hook to the submerged car and it was a blue Toyota Tercel and they were able to pull it out of the water and they noticed there was some damage to the rear bumper, but then they saw a human leg extended from the trunk area kind of protruding into the back seat. So they're quickly like, not an insurance scam. This is nope. So they stopped immediately and contacted the Miami-Dade homicide unit. So two nights earlier on January 14th, it was a rainy Saturday evening and 39-year-old Beverly Jackson was getting ready to leave her house to head to her job at Jackson Memorial Hospital. Um, she did work as a pediatric aid nurse and her overnight shift usually started at 11 p.m. So she told her sister Sonia goodbye and she mentioned like she needed to put gas in her car. Um, both were single mothers. So Beverly and Sonia were actually living together and raising seven children like together. So it's a lot of a lot of kids in that. Yeah, there's a lot of children and like two very strong women who are like, let's do this together. Like we can help each other out. Mm-hmm. Like that's what family's for. I mean, like it's it's really nice, you know. Mm-hmm. So Beverly's oldest daughter Yolaine, she lived about 30 minutes away with her two year old, and she was 18, but she was living on her own. Um, but the two were still very close, and Beverly would actually watch her granddaughter during the day and then drive to Yolaine's house at around 9 p.m. on her way to work. So she would watch her during the day because Yolaine's in school and working and then she'd usually drive her home. But on January 14th, her daughter had actually picked up um, Beverly's granddaughter early. And she was like, I didn't want like my mom to have to, you know, drive back to my house, like just trying to make it easier on her. Um, And so now Beverly didn't have to leave the house for work until 10 PM. So soon after Sonia also left the house, she also had an overnight shift at a different hospital. And at 7 a.m., she called home to check in and she talks to the kids and they said Beverly never made it to work last night and they have been trying to get a hold of Sonia all night. So all of Beverly's family, including her mother, Lena, were gathered at the house and growing very worried. So it was rainy. So they were worried, like, did she have an accident? Like, she accidentally run off the road. Um, But they did call the morgues and hospitals, um, but she was not there. And they were trying to call, like, everyone they knew to see if they found out, like, what happened, had they heard from her. And the family just immediately knew something was wrong. They're like, she's not going to just ditch off of work and not come home or anything like that. Yeah, like, we talk about this, like, so many times in these cases where you're like, you know your family and you know that something is wrong when they don't show up to work, when they don't come home. Like, you are raising seven children together with your sister. Like, you you don't just disappear. Yeah. And Lena calls 911 to report Beverly missing, and an officer was sent to the house. But they say because she's an adult, a missing person report could not be filed for 72 hours. Um, And other than ask the family a few questions, they said there's really nothing much else they can do. Um, They asked Sonia if she had, like, a secret boyfriend or secret friends. And Sonia's like, 
no, like we didn't keep secrets like that. We told each other everything and we're so busy. We don't have time for stupid stuff like that. Like we don't have time for secret boyfriends. And we got, you know, seven children and a granddaughter we watch all the time. <laughs> like, right. Like Beverly is working all day watching her two-year-old grandchild and then working all night for pay at a hospital. Like this girl doesn't have time for a secret boyfriend. <laughs> but I'm also like, if it was secret, why would Sonia know about it? <laughs> True, true. I'm like, why would you ask that? Like, well, clearly I don't know of a secret <laughs> yeah. boyfriend. You're like, this is not a um, secret. Okay. Yeah. But like, they had their hands full. Like, she's like, Beverly didn't have time for that. So for the next two days, Beverly's family frantically searched for her. Um, they were searching the streets, handing out flyers, and Sonia was at home monitoring calls. They drove a lot of the routes she would take just to see if they could like see her car anywhere, see it like in a ditch. Um, But that Monday morning, just two miles from her house, police did rope off the crime scene where they had found the vehicle in the canal. And police ran the tag and it did come back to Beverly Jackson. So the entire car was taken to the medical examiner's office and they removed Beverly from the trunk and began their investigation. So she was fully clothed and had her nursing uniform on. Um, She did have one sneaker on and the other was missing, but her body was completely like intact. Like they didn't see bullet wounds or stab wounds or any signs of like fatal trauma. So the medical examiner is like, I don't really see an obvious cause of death. Like I'm not sure what happened. But after he investigated further, um, he did find a significant amount of water in her lungs, which indicated she was still breathing when, like, her car went into the canal. So Beverly was locked in the trunk when her car went into the canal. And according to the medical examiner's findings, she had drowned slowly. Um, There was felt on the lining of the trunk, and you could see she had been kicking and scraping because there were, like, nail scrapings all over the felt. So, like... She'd obviously been fighting very, very hard to try and get out of the trunk and, like, save her life and was doing everything she could to get out, but just couldn't. And I do want to put a trigger warning here. And for some of the rest of the episode, um, we do have some discussions of rape. Um, So the medical examiner also discovered she had a vaginal mucosal laceration. Sorry, guys. Laceration. Don't know why that word was so hard for me. Um, You got it. I'm so proud. I figured it out. I get there eventually. (laughs) So it does appear she was sexually assaulted before her death. So they do perform a rape kit to see if they can extract any semen for DNA testing. So she'd been wearing like elastic pants that had actually held in any evidence, even in the water, which was good news for the investigation. Because they're like, this was like perfectly like contained at an you know, a usable piece of evidence. Which is like super rare for a drowning victim. Yeah. So they do run the sample through the DNA database, but it is 1995. So very early in terms of DNA, not many samples have been collected. And it's also going to take a week to know if there's like any match in their database. So detectives do go notify Beverly's family that she had been found and her family tells detectives that Beverly was born in Jamaica and she followed her mother and siblings to America looking for more opportunities. Um, They had very humble beginnings. They had to work very hard, but she did go to nursing school and graduated and then bought the house in Miami Lakes where she lived with Sonia and their children. She worked evenings as a pediatric aid nurse, caring for terminally ill children at night so that she could be with her children and granddaughter during the day. 
The family did tell detectives that Beverly had a boyfriend, George Walker, and their relationship was kind of rocky. Like, it was good in the beginning, but it kind of turned bad quickly, and they would break up, then get back together, then break up. You know, that cycle where it's like on again, off again, on again, off again. Yeah. Um, And they also had a lot of, like, financial battles. So when detectives told George about Beverly's death, he did sound surprised, and he said he was out of state the night she was murdered. George did say, however, there was another man in Beverly's life who had been hanging around, like, a lot, especially lately, and that's her ex-husband and the father of her four children, 40-year-old Yule Stinnett. So Yule and Beverly had been married in Jamaica. They'd started a family, and they had a very bad breakup, like, There'd been a lot of abuse in the marriage. They just didn't really, wasn't a great relationship. Um, They have been divorced for 10 years, but he was still around some. I mean, he probably does still want to see his children too. Like, you know, it's when you have kids with someone and they do want to see the kids, you can't really make a clean break. (laughs) Yeah. You're, you're kind of still involved with that person forever then. Yeah. So detectives did interview Yule and he gave his DNA voluntarily um, it would take some time to get the results, though. Again, 1995, it's very slow. Um, there was a tip that Sonia's children were unhappy with him being around the house. They felt there were too many rules. And so, like, the tip, the person who called in the tip was, like, one of her, like, one of Sonia's sons had something to do with it. But he was quickly ruled out as a suspect. There was no evidence towards that um and detectives also ruled out george walker so his alibi did hold up he was out of town he was in connecticut actually the night beverly was killed so very from miami to connecticut very far away (laughs) yeah it's it's not like one of those alibis where it's like oh i was two towns over it couldn't have been me and it's like clearly you could get there and then be back by the time you were seen it's like connecticut like that's pretty pretty solid there yeah it's like a 17 hour drive at least yeah so Beverly's family does feel uneasy because they're like, we don't know who Beverly's killer is. Um, is it someone we know? They're still out there. Like Sonia said she felt like someone was watching her the whole time. And she did end up moving out of the house they'd shared. Like she didn't sell it. Like she wasn't trying to like make money quickly and sell it. Like she just left. She was like, I can't be in here anymore. And I don't know what happened. Like, I just can't do it. So detectives did get the DNA results back from Yule Stinnett, and they were not a match to the DNA found on Beverly Jackson. So it's not George and it's not Yule. It's neither of them. Um, They also still didn't find any matches in the database to the rape kit. So no matches to anyone they have in their system. And over the next few months, detectives clear any suspects they come across. So there's just like no closer to solving her murder from the day she was found. And with no leads, detectives did start to move on and put their attention to newer cases. Um, One of the detectives in the documentary was like, yeah, like it was still on my desk. Like I didn't go put it like away, but it was like there was nothing like there was no leads to go off of. Yeah. And we see this a lot where it's like they have to start focusing on these newer cases that are coming in where it might be easier to find evidence and you might have witnesses and those things that you're not having in this case that's now a year old, you know. And it's Miami. I mean, it's a huge city slash county. Like, I'm sure crime happens every day. So it's like we can't. It happens. Like, it sucks, but it happens. Um And on the first anniversary of Beverly's death, her family gathers at the canal where she was found to pay tribute and just try to keep the case alive, just keep attention coming. And Lena and Sonia continue to call detectives regularly for eight years to try and keep the case from going completely cold. So they just kept calling, being like, 
anything like what's going on what's going on um and they kept telling Sonia they're like we're just gonna have to wait on a confession at this point like a confession like nothing is coming up um However, one young man does turn out to be very pivotal in this case. Um, The documentary called him John because he wishes to remain anonymous. He says even today he still fears for his life because of coming forward with information. Um, He was threatened that if he said something, he would lose his life. So three years after Beverly's murder, 16-year-old John was hanging out with his 18-year-old friend Dooley Green in Carroll City. So Dooley started bragging about a crime he committed years ago. So he said something like, if they ever catch us, they'll never let us out. Um, So John's like a little bit confused. He's like, let me try to inquire a little further here, find out what the hell you're talking about. So Dooley said that him and his friend Victor carjacked a woman at a local gas station at gunpoint, and then they threw her in the trunk of her car and rolled it into a nearby canal. So John is listening to this story, but he just thinks that Dooley is like delirious, that there's no way he was actually a part of a crime like this. Um, He said that he sounded like proud of it, but he just kind of dismissed it as just idle boasting, just a teenager making up random shit just for the attention. You know, like he didn't think he was really serious. Because he's like so young. He's like, there's no way as like a 15 year old that you did this. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. So, sometime later, John and Dooley were smoking pot at a local park when Victor Pistano joined them. So, Dooley brought it up again and was like, hey, Victor, do you remember when we killed that bee? And John said he could see that Victor was, like, giving Dooley a look, like, what are you doing? Like, why are you talking about this right now? And John said that he quickly tried to change the subject. He's like, I don't want to get in the middle of all this. So, Dooley then repeated the story three times over the next five years. Um, But still, John doesn't tell anyone what he's heard. Um, Again, he is 16 at this time. He said that around this time, everyone had these, like, stop snitching shirts. And he's like, I don't want to be a snitch. Like, I don't want to be that guy that gets in trouble. Like, I don't want them to kill me because I told somebody what I heard. Like, he was afraid. But John's conscience does start to eat at him, especially when the WWJD or What Would Jesus Do tag started coming out everywhere. Like, we all remember those shirts and bracelets and, you know, all this stuff. And he was like, oh, yikes, like I'm starting to feel uncomfortable about all of this. So he is feeling guilty, but he's also like still fearing for his life. Um, So John felt scared of Dooley and that he could be next. So eventually he does decide to call the police. So he called the non-emergency line and began to ask if there had been anyone they had found a few years ago that was in the trunk of their car. Um, So eventually while talking to the detectives, they said that he had information that was right on point with the evidence. Um, He actually had so much information that they brought him in and took his DNA to compare, but he was not a match. He also took a polygraph test and passed it as well. Which I think is pretty telling if they're like, he has so much information, like he has to be the guy. Yeah, right. Like we need to take your DNA because it's clearly you. Yeah, you're like, you you know way too much about the details that clearly were not published. Um, but since he's passed, his DNA doesn't match. They start looking into the story that he told. So they're looking into Dooley Green and Victor Pistano. Um, so they're trying to see if they would have been in town the night of the murders and if they had like a criminal record. And they were only 15 and 16 years old at the time this murder occurred. So it's like that alone would make you be like, mm, are we sure these are the right people? Like 15 and 16 years old for something so brutal, you know? So they did both live in Carroll City at the time, which obviously put them in the area. 
And Julie Green's criminal history was very minor, but Victor Pisano did have a lengthy rap sheet. Um, so burglary, theft, drug possession, like obviously nothing as big as murder, but you know, some things. Um, but neither of them had had anything like serious since then. Um, one of them was even married with children at this time. So like, okay, how could two teenagers like commit such a horrific crime and then just go on to live a normal life and not get in trouble at all? Like this doesn't add up. I think it's so rare that like murder is a one-off a lot of times like yeah a random murder is a one-off mm-hmm. like i feel like it's so rare that you see that or like they don't commit any more crimes it's like you commit this like horrible like a lot of the investigators were like it was just so cruel that they just mm-hmm. left her in the trunk of her car and put her in a canal like how do these if it is these yeah. two boys like children basically mm-hmm. who did this like how do they just keep moving on and going on with their life like Yeah, like usually if someone's going to commit a crime that horrific, like during their teenage years, in their 20s, they're going to be doing the same stuff or worse or like Mm -hmm. it usually escalates. It doesn't usually like, oh, well, got that out of my system. Let me go on and do some other things now. Like, yeah, unusual. Um, But on October 9th, 2003, Victor and Dooley were served with warrants for their DNA. Um, So both men do come in willingly and offer their DNA and waive their Miranda rights and rights to a lawyer. Um, So they were interviewed separately. And Victor started out saying like he didn't know what they were talking about. But little by little, his story does start to change. Um, He said that Dooley picked him up next to the house with Beverly. And he said Beverly said she would, quote, give him some if he told Dooley to let her go. So Victor did admit to having sex with her. And Victor said after he had sex, he just left and he didn't know what Dooley did with her. However, in the other room, Dooley was blaming it all on Victor. We see this all the time when you have a partner in crime. So Dooley also said it was Victor who drove off with Beverly. So detectives decided to try something unusual and put them in the same room together without any detectives. But they didn't realize that they were being videotaped, which I'm just like, how dumb are you? How do you not know? You're in a like police interrogation room and you're like, we're good. We're good to talk freely. Yeah. Yeah. Like this is a safe space. Like, why would you think that? But they did. And so they start opening up to each other, having this frank conversation like no one is listening So eventually Dooley says like, hey, they know what we did, but they don't know how she got in that canal. He's like, that's what they're trying to figure out. Like they they don't have that information. Um, And they were also talking about how they couldn't believe that they were in this mess like 10 years later. And they're trying to figure out how the police found out about it. Um, So basically it's like a confession. Like they are clearly acknowledging that they had something to do with this. And they also start talking about how they need to blame it on a third person. So they agree to implicate Dooley's sister's ex-boyfriend, who has now been dead for three years. So obviously, this strategy does not work because they are on tape having this conversation. (laughs) Like, you are being recorded in a police station during an interrogation. This information is not private. So... They know all of the things you're saying. If you're ever in a police station, just assume any water you drink is going to be, they're going to take your DNA. Mm -hmm. Um, Anything you say is being videotaped 100% of the time. Like, yeah, come on. Come on now. Even if you're alone, they're watching. Exactly. You've seen seen the shows. You know, it's a double-sided mirror. You know Mm -hmm. it is. That's all part of their strategy. Just what? Um, But after these confessions, they do have enough to arrest them for sexual battery and murder. So prosecutors quickly began building their case against Dooley and Victor. Um, but now John, our witness, has vanished. Like he's, he just took off. He's like, I'm out of here. So without his testimony, like this entire case could fall apart. Like that's how they were led to these guys in the first place. 
Um, so the DNA inside Beverly did end up matching Victor. Um, so obviously that's a very powerful piece of evidence, but they could only tie Victor to the crime, not Dooley. So they don't have Dooley's DNA. Um, however, thankfully, right before the trial, John does emerge and does agree to testify at the trial. So in July of 2006, Dooley Green goes to trial. Um, so the prosecution is presenting what happened. So they say that Beverly Jackson was on her way to work and she stopped to get gas and coffee. And while she was pumping gas, Dooley and Victor approached her, put a gun to her head and made her get in the car. So they promised her like when she got in the car, they weren't going to hurt her. So she's like, OK, like cause they're like, if you get in the car, we're not going to hurt you. So she's like, OK, I would rather do that than them shoot me right here. Um but she was saying over and over, like, please don't hurt me. So the two did end up driving her to a school parking lot and took turns raping her. Um, so first Victor and then Dooley. And based on what they told John, they said that after Victor was finished and while Dooley was raping her, that Victor like called out his name. So because the name Dooley is very unique, they're like, okay, she could identify us now. Like we decided at that point that we're going to have to kill her because she could implicate us. So they decided to put her in the trunk of her own car and they put the car in reverse and backed the car into either a tree or a pole and then they rolled the car into the canal. So the medical examiner did testify that it took anywhere from four to six minutes for her lungs to fill up with water and for her to actually drown. So that is a very long time for you to be dying like that in yeah. the trunk of your car drowning. After being raped, like after the horrificness of being like yeah. raped and now you get put in the trunk of your car and put into a canal. Like, just literally the most horrific death. Yeah. Like, so much time to think about what is happening to you. Like, <sighs> so Beverly's family said, like, even at the trial, the two did not appear remorseful at all. Like, they denied killing her, so they didn't do anything. Just, again, taking no accountability for their actions. So, Dooley Green was found guilty of first-degree murder with a firearm, um, and he was sentenced to four life sentences for robbery, carjacking, sexual battery, and murder. And in January of 2007, Victor Pistano was sentenced to two life sentences for kidnapping and first-degree murder, plus 60 years in prison for carjacking and sexual battery. I was did think it was weird that, like, they had Victor's DNA for the sexual battery and he only got 60 years for it or duly got a life sentence like yeah. i don't know why i thought that was so weird but well i wonder if it's because a life sentence like isn't really life so maybe like the 60 years true. is actually like, longer than the life sentence like i know it depends on like the state and their different you know criteria and parole and stuff but like i know in some places like life could be as short as like 12 years so maybe the 60 years yeah is actually it, longer. It kind of depends because, as we'll see, Victor should theoretically get out before. Um, yeah, duly. So I'm just like, I don't know. Very weird. Yeah, it <laughs> is weird. But since testifying, John said that his friends and family have turned their backs on him for coming forward and telling the truth. He had to move states and change his name out of fear of retaliation. He said when he testified in court, like men were in the back yelling threats at him. I mean, just he could not continue to live there because like everyone turned his back yeah yeah um, which is insane yeah and like in the documentary um one of beverly's sisters was like i would love to meet him i never got to meet him and they do mm -hmm. like meet each other and it is mm -hmm. like a very like sweet wow. moment and she's like i know they were all so mean to you but like we think about you every day and we're so grateful for you because like if it wasn't for you like this would not be solved so it's yeah. just like 
it's so horrible. Like the stigma, it's like so many times we see cases and we're like, someone knows something like, why don't they come forward? And it's like, because of this, like you're Mm -hmm. basically almost sentencing yourself to like isolation or fear for the rest of your life because all your friends and family and your whole neighborhood and your community is just going to turn against you. Like, and it's so sad that like his friends and family did the same thing. Cause I understand like Dooley and Victor's friends that are like, Oh, I'm going to kill you. I want, I'm not, I don't understand it, but you know, it's, it's different from John's own family and friends being like, how dare you turn in these other people? Like what? Like that doesn't yeah, make any sense. Insane. Yeah. So, in December of 2020, Dooley Green did appeal his conviction, stating that he was a juvenile at the time of the crime, and there was no forensic evidence linking him to the murder of Beverly Jackson. So, it does look like the courts agreed to vacate the sentence um, and remand him for resentencing, but we cannot find any more information on what happened after that, like, with that sentencing. Like, did he get resentenced? Is he out? Um, yeah, I no clue. Uh, does say Can't that find anything. Still- But according to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, Dooley is still incarcerated and isn't due to be let out until 2063, um, and he will be 84 at that time. And Victor Pistano is expected to be released in 2048, and he will be 69. And those are estimates. You know, there is sometimes credit time served for good behavior, all that stuff. But that is what the current of this recording database Mm -hmm. says. (laughs) But yeah, that is wild that Victor would get less time when his dna was the one that was found on the body it seems they were very equal in Mm -hmm. deciding to you know carjack her first of all and Mm -hmm. then rape her and then put her in the trunk and put her in a canal like it seems very much equal from every story we've heard so yeah i don't know if it's because julie went to trial first if maybe victor took a plea deal and didn't actually because it doesn't say Mm -hmm. in the documentary there was like an official trial so i don't yeah. really know they didn't really go much into that as they did with Dooley. so i don't know if he saw that and was like mm, it's like i'll just plead guilty and get, get done with 60 this 60 years instead of that other one yeah like could be <laughs> yeah but yeah that is the just horrific senseless unnecessary murder of beverly jackson yeah just absolutely horrible and like just so unnecessary Mm -hmm. and like these are so So rare too that you are just killed by a complete stranger just out and about you know like you hear them covered a lot in cases like this but like in in podcasts like this but it is a very rare occurrence for it to happen but just i mean how i mean this is what we all fear you know like when you like stop and get gas in the dark and you're just like constantly like looking around like being aware of your surroundings and it's like this is exactly why Yeah. And like the whole reason they decided instead of letting her go to like put her in the trunk is because one of them messed up and said the other person's name and they thought it was common and freaked out where it's like, what if that had gone differently? Like, what if it's, it's just very sad. And the amount of trauma that their family had to go through for so long, not knowing what happened, you know, to their loved one and, and the trauma that they have to feel like anytime they stop and get gas or they're out alone after dark. And like mm-hmm. those stories that like we all hear and we like internalize when we're like for them, it's just a completely different level. You know, it's like you can never feel that safety yeah. and security again. And having to go eight years with no answers at all, yeah. you know, like. 
and not that it's ever any better when there's like a quote reason behind it but just something's just so out of the blue and senseless it's just ugh. and i think i can't say um i think victims families could say more than we ever could mm-hmm. um but i feel like maybe there might just be like and some people might not want to know but like knowing your loved one's last few moments mm-hmm. even if it's horrific being like what you know what I mean? Like what happened? Like sometimes like some people don't want to know, but sometimes that could be closure. If you do want to know of like, I just need to know what happened, even if it's yeah. horrible. And so long that they weren't able to yeah, have that information. Yeah. Ugh. Okay. Um, <laughs> Courtney, yeah. awkward transition. <laughs> what is your perk of the week? So my perk of the week is, this week at the time of well, last week technically the time was recording like a month ago at the time <laughs> you listened to this um i did have to go out of town on a work trip um and i'm still dabbling my toes into traveling for work alone as a woman especially because it's been in the winter so the sun sets at five mm-hmm. every day and it kind of sucks um but this time i did venture out and i did go and sat down at a restaurant at the bar and ate dinner by myself and my book and it was very nice and it was very fun to like be around people and all that and then it was only like a two second walk from my hotel so that was Mm kind of nice too where I knew I could just walk right back um didn't have to like get the car out and drive somewhere or whatever Mm -hmm. but I'm just slowly you know it gets a little scary when you're like I've been like four hours away from like anyone I know and so I'm like if something happens to me like (laughs) Who do I call? I guess yeah. the police. Hope you guys don't <laughs> suck. But like, it's, it's you know, it's different. Yeah. But I do enjoy my trips overall. It's just still getting used to it. They've been mm-hmm. very last minute. But I was venturing out and I also went to, I went to Louisville and they had this lights under Louisville where it was this cavern, like underground cavern. And they mm-hmm. like deck it out for Christmas. Like it was like a 30 minute drive through this cavern of just like lights everywhere. And that was super fun. So I'm venturing out. I'm not just like sitting at my hotel by myself all day or not. Well, I go out some for work, but yeah, you know, I'm venturing out. I'm being more adventurous. <laughs> I'm very proud of you because that is, I don't want to say out of character, but it is. What's the word I'm looking for? Like I'm out of my comfort zone. Out of comfort zone. There we go. That I'm like, not yeah. out of character. I'm like, that makes it sound like it's, but out of your comfort zone. Yes. Yeah, so that is something that is out of your comfort zone and i'm proud of you for taking that step and thank you and doing when it I sent and the snap it. too like a lot of people were like oh i love going out by myself and i'm like in knoxville like i know where i am and know but mm-hmm. like if i'm in a whole new city and i don't know yeah. anyone like it's an extra like fear of like mm-hmm. what am i gonna tell my boss if i get murdered <laughs> kenny's gonna feel so bad oh we I did name, but it's fine <laughs> we did i can cut that if you did me too uh <laughs> we did joke about if courtney was going to how did this come up? I don't remember how this came up, but Courtney's like, oh, I was going to use that as my perk of the week, but I can't, like, if I'm murdered. And I was like, well, I just need you to record it as a voice memo and send it to me and we'll play yeah, it at the very my, end. Like, weird leg thing. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it was. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But I said at the end of the episode, talking about Courtney's death, I would just record that little voice memo that she left for you guys and we would end on our on our last little note there and it would you know just so be she's, my voice how fucking yeah. morbid would that be um but no i'm fine and it always i always have a good time it always works out um mm-hmm. it's just sometimes little i think in this if it's like in the summer it'd be better because it's like 
like light out longer but when, mm-hmm. when the sun sets at 5 30 like you don't want to be walking around places yeah. in the dark by yourself like that's never yeah. a safe idea but it's all fine i'm fine and it was it was nice and i'll probably do it again next time i go out of yeah. town just venture out um but yeah Very that's nice. my perk of the week jacqueline what is your perk of the week so my perk of the week, which is also kind of not a perk of the week, but anyway, so this week I set on my phone, you can set time limits on like certain apps. Mm-hmm. So I put time limits on my social media apps and it's, it's been a challenge. I'm not going to lie. So, so last <laughs> week we talked about our, our new year, you know, goal setting and whatever. And after that, I actually took a workshop that was like talking about like planning for the new year and you know, whatever. But one of the things that they talk, which it's the um, Bossed Up organization. So if you guys want to check them out, they also have a podcast. I really like her. I really like her stuff that she puts out. Um, but one of the things that she talked about is like, what what is working for you and how can you continue doing that into the next year? And what is not working for you and how can you, you know? So I was like really like trying to reflect and think about like, okay, what do I feel like is not like working? You know? And I was like, I waste a lot of time on social media. I'm like, I waste a lot. Like, and it's, it's one of those. I mean, we all do like the doom scroll where it's like at the end of the night, like you were just so mentally exhausted that it's like, Oh, I could read a book or I could watch TV or I could, but I don't have the energy to like focus on any of those things. And so I just Mm -hmm. sit and scroll and then it's like been two hours and I'm like, I could have done so many more productive, like not even like productive things, but like productive relaxing things you know what i mean like reading a book like watching a tv show watching a movie like those things that would be a more productive way to relax than just like scrolling on tiktok for two hours so i set a time limit on my phone for my social media apps and it's been a very humbling experience because when that timer goes off at like 1 p.m i'm like shit (laughs) (laughs) no more for me for the rest of the day yeah. So, and I'm not going to lie. I have not, like, I've cheated. I mean, I, you know, cause you can say like, ignore this limit or like, give me like 15 more minutes or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. <laughs> and then it pops back up in 15 minutes and it's like, your time's up. <laughs> give me more 15 minutes. Like, that's more how fine, you know you're fine. an addict. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, my, my goal is to, for 2023, to start getting it down to like one hour a day, but and to, yeah, so I feel like, like a over month. the past year, I still scroll some, but I think I've taken like, a pretty big step back from like social media mm-hmm. in a way like I don't know I would like especially after I went on my honeymoon for two weeks and it was like well at 6 p.m it's midnight for everyone <laughs> else and there's nothing really left on the social media so that's not fun yeah and like I go on like whenever I go on trips like I never do it but like I've been trying like I don't I don't really post as much anymore mm-hmm. like I don't really feel the need to like I don't really want people to know my shit like <laughs> I don't know <laughs> yeah. I just taken like a, a big step back kind of on like just sharing stuff in general on Facebook because yeah. I'm like, you know, if people don't talk to me or like ask me about stuff like you don't really deserve to know. So that's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, that's just me, though. I've just kind of been like, well, I don't really want to do it. I only do it if I want to share something to piss people off, which <laughs> I already have one lined up and I can't wait to share oh, it. Oh, boy. Piss people off. I'm um, excited. But Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, speaking yeah. of staying off of social media, you guys can find us yeah. <laughs> on Instagram. We still post there <laughs> weekly. We still post there weekly and semi-regularly. I do, I do still do my like, you know, oh, it's a funny, obligations. A funny segue there. Um, but we are on Instagram at Caffeinated Crimes Pod. We are on Twitter at Caff Crimes Pod. That's C-A-F-F Crimes Pod. We are on Facebook at Caffeinated Crimes Podcast. Or you can email us at caffeinatedcrimespod at gmail.com. Um, hopefully not on your list of 
time locked social media apps is our Patreon, which is yeah. um, patreon.com slash caffeinated Does crimes. that count towards your locked no. ones? Because what if you're just trying to listen to podcasts? <laughs> you can pick like which ones oh, count. Okay. So it's not like a category. Like you like specifically like put whatever apps, apps into yeah. your category. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you can hang out there all day and be a very productive relaxation time at Caffeinated Crimes. Nope, at who that champagne hitting y'all at patreon.com slash caffeinated crimes, where we have a bunch of bonus episodes and we have gifts and hangouts and pins and stickers and video episodes and all that fun stuff. So definitely yeah. Check us out there, um, starting at $3 a month, ad-free episodes, forgot that. So all kinds of cool stuff happening over there. So, you know, check it out. If you're, if you're looking for something new in this new year, if you wanted to, you know, support small business ventures or whatever, we are there. We're here. Come on. We're here for you. There's a very loud train honking in the background. I hope it's not picking it up. Um, (laughs) Do trains honk? (laughs) Like, who, who, whistle? It's a honk. It's the same thing. It's the train version of a honk. <laughs> I've just anyway. never heard someone say a train honking. <laughs> but like they, whenever they go through the thing, they're like honk honk. Like don't, we're gonna hit you. Yeah, like I mean, like a whistle though, right? Like a train whistle or a train's like chewing. <laughs> but you can also whistle whenever like you're trying to let the steam out to go faster. Mm, so how do you know the difference true. between a whistle and a hey, watch out, I'm coming through this, and if your car's there, I'm gonna hit it. Well, they just need a recording that just says that exactly. <laughs> they can just play that very loudly. Yeah, I guess so. Um. Hi there. It is editing Jacqueline coming at you to um, apologize to Courtney from the bottom of my heart because our research after this episode ended did inform me that trains do in fact honk. Um, I don't know. I I personally would not use that terminology. I did not realize that was a thing, but apparently it is, and I am the one in the wrong here. <laughs> So, um, my deepest, sincerest apologies to Courtney. Um, continue with your honking trains. Thank you. But if you feel so inclined to give us five stars, um, after this quality Apple, content, how could you right? not? I mean, <laughs> on Apple, on Spotify, on whatever, um, you please do that. That would be great. We would love that. Um, but in the meantime, go have a cup of coffee and don't commit a crime. <laughs>